in verse 8, So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. So it wasn't just a matter of reading it word by word, but to take time to explain and expound what it meant, how God intended it, and so on. And that's the way we speak today. It's the way I approach something is you can sit and read the Bible yourself just as well as I can read it to you. But sometimes someone going through and expounding and explaining helps us get more out of it. And that's what they were doing. And Nehemiah, which is uh, the Tirshatha and Ezra, the priests, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Eternal your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They were overcome with emotion, and I'm sure they wept in part because they had, not, they had forgotten the law and were not keeping it. And therefore, they, were, they had a mixture of emotions there and were feeling very sorrowful and wept when they heard the words of the law and realized, we've not been doing this. So it put them in a, probably a very uh, strong emotional state. But he says, hey, we are going to keep it now, so don't weep. Rejoice. You're, you're fixing it. <laughs> don't... It's like I've been saying lately, we don't live in the past. Unhitch that trailer. Let's quit weeping about the past and live for the future. You can't redo the past anyway. I don't think that can be emphasized enough because people tend to do that, and that's simply pretty much what they were doing here, I think. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions to them for whom nothing is prepared. So... You eat and enjoy and bring or prepare or give to those who are without. This is a time that pictures plenty and prosperity for all. So everyone should be able to imbibe of the good things of the flesh, which represent the good things of the Spirit. For this day is holy to our God, neither be you sorry, for the day of the Lord is your strength to be happy, to be strong in God. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be you grieved. So we're here to rejoice and be cheerful and not worried or grieved or frustrated over conditions. Uh, it's, it's as if we were already in the millennium in a small way. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great Laughter, humor, mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And uh, the law of God is holy, just, and good. It's a good thing. It's a cheerful thing because you are happier and more peaceful when you're keeping it than you are when you're breaking it. Then you've got a bad conscience and you're worried and you're frustrated and things don't go as well. So, a time to rejoice. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, to send portions. Uh, I already read that in 13. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests, the Levites, to Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. So the holy day, first day, is a holy convocation or a commanded assembly. Uh, but he shows here 
that on the second day, which was not a Sabbath, but it was a day of the feast, they also came together. So we have a service, uh, considering the words of God, every day during the feast, and here's a good example of why we do. And they found written in the law which the Eternal had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. Uh, they were to build those booths actually on the first day. I, uh, I made the bed in mine yesterday. It, it's, it's, I don't have any palm trees, so it's got a metal skin, but I'm not living in the house. I'm living out in the trailer. <laughs> Could have put a tent up. But whatever. And they that and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth to the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. Now we don't uh, we don't do that in the, the exact same physical way, but the meaning and the principle is that we are temporary on this earth. We are only here looking forward in the first 6,000 years of man's existence to that 7,000 years, the Sabbath, a time of peace and rest for animals, man, the earth, everything. So, the New Testament puts it that we're ambassadors for Christ, that our kingdom is in heaven and that kingdom is coming here. So, we're here temporarily as ambassadors in a foreign country. And even though we're in the land of Israel, it is foreign to God in our present culture and society. So, he had us dwell in temporary dwellings or to change our dwelling to remind us of our temporary state here and that we're looking forward to something better in the future. So, that's the meaning of staying in temporary dwellings. So they went forth uh, and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, in the street of the water gate, in the street of the gate of Engedi. They moved out in the street or on top of the house. I don't think I want to move on top of this house. I might slide off, but uh, I could be outside, away from it. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. So they had been in captivity now for 70 years, and had only been, this was the second year after they were released from that 70 years. For since the days of uh, Joshua the son of Nun to that day, had not the children of Israel done so, and there was very great gladness. That's what they were encouraged to have. Also, day by day, from the feast, first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. So they did it every day, it says here, directly. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner, of course, as laid out in Leviticus 23. But uh, there's quite a message there, I think, uh, for us, which just basically echoes Zechariah 14. We're here to worship God and to consider His ways, His laws, and how we ought to live and what our attitudes ought to be. So, I think that's a good preface for the feast to consider. Now, as far as uh, a part of the Bible to consider today, and 
understanding ourselves and God better, I want to go into a series and start in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you may remember that, oh, it's been decades ago now, but uh, as I recall, it was sometime in the 60s, because I was, I believe, in college or had just graduated at that time, that Herbert Armstrong discovered uh, something that he had never really thought about or believed in in the Bible. And uh, it was so impressive to him to comprehend that, that he wrote quite extensively and spoke about it quite a bit. And I'm not talking about the two trees. Uh, there was another subject that became very paramount in his mind that he felt we should get and understand. It was quite easy to understand that what he was saying was there, but did we fully and truly grasp what it means? And that's what I want to address during this period of time. But let's go back to Ecclesiastes first, chapter 3, and in verse 21. He's talking about death here and how we all go to one place and we all turn to dust again after our physical death. And then he says in verse 21, Who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? We okay over there? Table fall in? Are we still on? Okay. I thought Eutychus just fell out of the balcony. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I was saying, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? And he had never considered that there is a spirit in man. We had always talked about the spirit of God. But here, a spirit in man is addressed, and also even the spirit of the beast. Uh, what does that mean? There are, there's the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, we'll find that there are also evil spirits, and then a spirit in man. Now, understanding the spirit in man will help us understand ourselves. And ultimately, will help us understand our relationship with God. So, he says that there is such a thing, and when we die, the spirit that we have goes back to God in heaven. Does that mean that we're alive and conscious in heaven, as the Protestants would tell us? We know better than that, so I'm not going to go there uh, except briefly. We know that no man has ascended he would, except he which came down, and that David himself is still in his grave. And Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, says that the dead know nothing. So when you're dead, you're dead. Your spirit goes back to God, and it's not conscious. Uh, it, it's like a recording on a tape or a DVD, for instance. It's, it's there. Uh, God has you recorded on that, and he keeps it. Your body, your flesh, goes to dust. 
but he has a remembrance, a total remembrance, total recall of everyone who's ever lived on the earth. And it is, well, like, like a DVD. It's, I've got some sitting right here. Uh, do you hear it? I don't hear it. I put it right to my ear. I don't hear it. You know what, though? There's something recorded on that, that if I put it over there and turn some buttons, you'll hear what is here. But it's inanimate right now. Makes no noise whatsoever. The spirit of man is the same. It goes back to God who gave it, and it's inanimate. Nobody can play it. You can't hear it. It's not conscious. Uh, whoever sung on that isn't on it, but their voice is recorded, and it can be activated, animated. And we were the same. We're dead, we know nothing, and then in the resurrection, we're animated and given life and voice that can be seen and heard again. So that is the process that God gives. Now he says, the spirit of man goes up to God who gave it, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Why that? Because man will be resurrected and the beast will not. He does not necessarily need a recording of a dog's life or a cat's life or a cow's life because there is no future for them. They were here, they lived, they died. For what? Man's purposes. God did not create this earth for cows or for dogs. He created it for man, and he put the beasts of the field subject to us, uh, even the fish. We can train in aquariums to jump and leap for things and go in circles and whatever, and we have that dominion over them. Uh, but he made the earth for mankind because he has a greater purpose and a reason for us, and therefore he makes a recording that is always there. Now, that can be destroyed if we don't make it into the kingdom of God. Because as we're resurrected, if we go into the third resurrection, uh, I'm sure that that will be gone, because there will be no memory of any of it, he says. Completely wiped out. We will not... I've often thought, wouldn't it be fun, and maybe it would in a way, I, I think of it, to meet Moses and Abraham and Noah. i got some questions for some of those people. Uh, you know, a hundred years you worked on a boat? If you've, owned, if you've owned a boat, you know that you can spend a lot of time working on them. But a hundred years on one boat, uh, that's a long, long time. So I have, I have things in mind I'd like to say. Sitting here, thinking about what some people went through. But you know, it says when we are resurrected that we will not think about the past anymore. We won't consider it. When you wake up in that new world as a spirit being with everything in front of you that God has promised, why in the world would you want to talk about something way back there? Now, maybe God will give us a consciousness, I don't know, of, uh, I'm speculating, of what all has happened in the past, because he inhabits eternity. He's timeless, 
And it might be that we would have a consciousness, once we're eternal, of everything that has occurred in the past, with a knowledge of what is to occur. And I don't know, he doesn't count time on clocks like we do. Well, we don't have clocks anymore on cell phones like we do. Uh, but time is eternity. And I'll let Einstein think of that about that. Well, he can't anymore either. Uh, but uh, we'll let others think about that in the technical sense because we'll understand it when we get there. And in the meantime, I'm too busy and not technically minded enough to come up with some theory about time. And you aren't either. But why would we want to go back to that which is far less than what is in front? I mean, we'll be eager. What have you got? Let's see. What are you going to do now, Abraham? <laughs> you know, not what did you do then? What are you going to do now? But humanly, when we read these things, we go back in time and think about it, and they're there for us to learn by. But then it will be forward, because the spirit of man goes up to God, and then it will be reactivated. Kind of like, uh, maybe we could use the analogy of dehydrated food. Uh, you know, it's pretty dead and powdery and wouldn't be very good to try to eat. But then you throw water in there, the water of the Spirit. Okay, that's a good analogy. And it reactivates and swells up into something that tastes decent again. Maybe not wonderful as it was, but this will be better than it was by far. So the analogy breaks down. But you've noticed, perhaps, with people, when they die, if you've been around them, they have a light in the eye. The, the light of the, the, the eye is a mirror of the soul, they say, or of you. Of you. And they, they glint, they sparkle, they shine. Uh, and when they die, they just become opaque, dull, sightless. No energy, no life, nothing there. It's just, in, in your first reaction is to put the eyelids down, or they used to put dimes or quarters over them so they couldn't see those blank, staring eyes that had no vision. They're, they're dead. They, they, they just, all the light goes away, just like that. Same with animals. And there is a spirit in animals as well. We'll get into that a, a bit later on. So let's go to chapter 8 and read verse 8. Ecclesiastes 8.8 8. There is no man that has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither has he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. So, when it comes time to die, you just die. And you have no power to keep yourself alive. It's just not there. It's, it's gone. And we have places in Scripture that say they gave up the spirit or gave up the ghost, as it's translated, uh, died. It, 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 it just left them. The life that was there deceased, stopped. And one more, chapter 12. And verse 7. 
Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. And then he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So, what we have here, vanity simply means temporary. I mean, it can be an attitude of pride, but in this sense, vanity is only speaking of that which is temporary and does not continue. It's, it's vain in that sense. Because you're only going to live so long and you're going to die. It's appointed to all men once to do so. So, as we get older, we realize that's getting closer and closer. Uh, you begin to think about it, understand it better, and realize that I'm getting there. Going down the freeway at age 20, you're not really thinking about it, although it could occur at any moment. But as you get older, you feel it happening. You, you, you start getting weak and creaky and groany and, and uh, you're beginning to fall apart and head for the dust. Bite the dust, as they say. But it returns to God who gave it. And when we are resurrected, it's no longer temporary. It's forever. So it's not vain. It's not... I mean, anything you do on this earth, no matter how great you might be or what you accomplish or how wealthy you are or whatever, as the Scripture says, you can't take it with you. It's all just vanity. It's all temporary. And somebody else will have whatever it was you had. And you can't even control that. You, you try. You make a will and you say so-and-so gets this and so-and-so gets this and this. And if it's not very much, yeah, maybe it goes that way. But if it's very much, then you've got families with lawyers fighting over, over it. And it may not turn out the way you wanted it to. But you've got no control. You're deader than a doornail and know nothing. So what happens after you, you have no control whatsoever over, even though you try. Now, let's go back to Genesis 1. Uh, here is when God did a recreation of the earth, made it like it is today. And at the end of verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. A better translation is hovered, or the Spirit of God hovered over the water. And then he began to separate, uh, cause uh, earth to come up above the water and so on, and began the creation there. But the Spirit of God moved. What does that mean? What is the Spirit of God? If you go to the Hebrew, uh, the word Spirit through the Old Testament is Ruach, R-U-A-C-H. And it is defined, first of all, as wind. Just wind. What does wind do? It moves. Uh, it has power. When the wind's blowing, you see leaves begin to flutter. If it blows more, you see paper begin to blow. If it moves more, you see houses begin to move. <laughs> you know. Uh, but wind is something you do not see the wind itself. You may see particulate in the wind, but the wind itself is invisible, and yet it accomplishes things. It moves things. You feel it. 
uh, if it's 40 degrees and it's no and there's no wind, it feels like 40 degrees. Now the wind goes up to 40 and suddenly it feels like 10 degrees because the wind is taking the heat from your body. There's there's a force there that changes things, right? It's hard for us to understand spirit because we're flesh and we don't grasp what spirit really is. And I think it's important for us to address it here some to get a better idea of what we're talking about. Uh, wind is the first thing. We don't see it, but we see what it does. It also goes on to say, by resemblance, breath. Uh, we know that there are places where it says that God breathed upon. Uh, when He created man, He breathed upon him, and life came into him. So it was the, the breath of God that had more power than that which shakes an aspen leaf. His breath imparted life to an inanimate object made of dirt. And it quickened. The eyes lit up. Uh, the body began to move. Things inside began to function. And it was alive. It could get up and walk around and talk and all those things. Uh, it can also mean exhalation, like you, you breathe out, and if somebody's near, they can feel the breath come out of your body. You might smell it too, but we're talking about the feel here. And he says figuratively then, in the definition, life. Something that comes to life, and isn't it breathing in and breathing out that keeps you alive? You quit breathing, uh, then you die pretty quickly. So he says spirit is like wind or breath. And it, the way God uses this imparts life. Then it says, uh, as part of the definition, spirit, but only of a rational being, including expression and function. So ruach is that breath, of life that we have, but the spirit in man is more than just air moving in and out of our lungs. It also has to do with expression and function. Function of your mind, function of your emotions, function of you as a human being as opposed to an inanimate object, let's say. So you're, you're active, you're alive. You, you can do things. You can think things. So expression and function is part of what spirit means. Might I say attitude? I've used that a lot lately there in the book of Romans, for instance, where I've said it's all about attitude. You see people, and they will have different attitudes, won't they? This one's angry, this one's sweet, this one's nice. Uh, and each of us can be all of those, depending on time of day and, and what's going on around us and so on. We can, our attitudes can go all over the map in one day. And even from moment to moment, I might be in a pretty good attitude and I'll step on one of these little goat heads with my bare foot. 
and suddenly my attitude just changes. All those things irritate me. Some of you who have not experienced that have something to look, shall I say, forward to. But attitude is something that can change. I mean, people say about the weather. Wait 15 minutes, it'll be different. So your spirit, your mind, your attitude can change very rapidly just like the weather can. Someone was at the Grand Canyon yesterday and, oh, they were so disappointed, one of my guests in the house here. And he had a picture he showed me. He got to the Grand Canyon and all he could see was fog. There was no hole in the ground. It was just fog. Oh, my. I drove all this way and I can see nothing. And he, he got in a morbid attitude. Well, morbid might be strong, but he was down. And 20 minutes later, the fog just started moving out. And suddenly there was the whole canyon before him. And his spirit changed. His mind changed. His whole attitude, he said, changed. Oh, this is beautiful. So from being downcast, now he was upcast. That's a new word. So, those are some of the elements of the spirit in man. But now I want to go to some scriptures and see if we can understand it in the light of, in this case, mostly the Old Testament. I found that very interesting, that nearly everything about the spirit in man is in the Old Testament. The New Testament has a, a complete change of direction there. So I won't even get there today. We'll get there a little later on. Let's go to uh, Genesis 6.3. I just kind of went through. There's, there's over 500 places that the word spirit appears in the Bible. And uh, then if you add ghosts to that, it's even more and other words that pertain to the Spirit. So it's a big subject, and uh, we'll, we'll have mercy and not try to hit all 500 and some of them. So I just picked out some to sort of give us a feel for what human beings are about. Here's chapter 6, verse 3. The Eternal said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred twenty years. Now God said that after man had been here for over a thousand years. And ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, there had been a problem between man and God. They had sinned, uh, they had gone Satan's way, and their relationship with God deteriorated very, very rapidly in the garden that day. And mankind got worse and worse. Uh, Cain killed his brother Abel. You know, that's, that was not a good thing. Uh, maybe Cain thought so at the moment, but he later regretted that even. So, there was violence on the earth, we know, terrible violence, and we're getting to that same level of violence very quickly now. Uh, in the world today. Now, this shows that there was a strife or an alienation or a problem between man and God. He says, I'm not always going to strive with men. And he says, their, their imagination of their thoughts 
is only evil continually down in verse 5. So God was going to do something about it, that is, drown them all. Except two, and then he decided to do it with eight. Because he, he said, I'm tired of fighting with you. I'm going to have somebody build a boat, and you're going to drown, and I'm not going to fight with you anymore. Now, he decided not to end it all right there, but he considered it. So he say he had Noah build a boat, and he's going to save these eight people and start over without the same level of violence and decadence that reigned on the earth at that time. Of course, it didn't take long from the time Noah and family came off the boat till man increased a little bit, and suddenly we had the Tower of Babel and everything that went with that. And then he confused it again by confusing languages, and they couldn't get along, so they split. And that gave a bit of peace for a while, but then those who had split and separated began warring back and forth among themselves over land and resources and whatever. So what's the history of man been but strife against each other and strife against God? That's, that's our history. Overall. So he says, I'm not going to do that forever. And we're on the precipice right now where God is about to make a third great intervention. And this time, he's not going to kill all but eight. He's going to see to it that all but 100 million die, as Daniel tells us. But he'll come back to begin to judge 100 million out of mere 7 billion now. So that's quite a reduction. Uh, but he's going to get it down to a manageable level where we as kings and priests can begin to truly teach peace on the earth in a way that it has never been before, or at least not since Adam and Eve partook uh, of the tree. So his spirit will not always strive with an adverse spirit, which is what man is, deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. So we need to understand about ourselves and then compare what our spirit is with the spirit of God and give us more recognition. So let's go on and examine that a bit. Uh, Genesis 39, verse 6. I just kind of thumbed down in the concordance and picked some of these out. Genesis 39, uh, Where is it here? Uh, Speaking of Joseph here, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew uh, not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. There's several places that it's mentioned that someone is a goodly person. It's speaking of their outlook. It's speaking of their attitude, their approach to life. And it is not used about many people in Scripture. It's used about Joseph here. It was used about Moses. We'll probably see that one. And just a few it spoke of that had a goodly attitude or approach to life. This one about Joseph. Now to chapter 45 and verse 27. And they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them. 
And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Now, Jacob was on his deathbed, essentially. And when he heard good news, his spirit revived. So that which was becoming weak and about to disappear became more lively, more active. You know how it is when you might be sitting around bored or frustrated or thinking about yourself or having a pity party or whatever puts you in kind of a despondent, maybe just tired, and you don't feel like doing anything. You're just tired. And then you get somebody knocks on the door that you really like, or somebody calls, and they are full of life and laughter and happiness, and suddenly you feel energized. Because what they present to you activates you. It picks you up. Uh, sometimes all I have to do is get in a hot shower. I'm tired. I don't feel like doing anything. It will, it will revive me. It will make me feel more like being alive <laughs> instead of going to sleep. So that's what happened with Jacob, but it was his spirit that revived. So that gives us a little inclination that it has to do with your mind, your emotions, your feelings, even approaching death, that there can be a pick-me-up in there somehow. Uh, boards don't go through that. Trees don't go through that. But people do, and even animals do. Your dog can have separation anxiety and be all uptight. And when you walk up the path and open the door, oh my, is his spirit energized. Licking and jumping and wanting to kiss you on the face and, uh, and all the things that dogs can do. Some of them disgusting. But I'm talking about the energizing of the spirit and attitude of the animal. That's what it's talking about here with Jacob. Uh... Exodus 2, verse 2. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Now, speaking of Moses' mother here. <clears throat> now, everybody thinks their kid is the best in the world, so I don't know how we use this entirely, but, but she saw that Moses apparently had a special attitude about him. You know, even with little children, uh, the Proverbs say that even a child is known by the things that he thinks, says, does. So, before you're a, an adult, people can see in you, oftentimes, the type of person you're going to be when you are an adult, because of your general approach to life. Some kids are happy kids. Some kids are more obedient. Some are stubborn and rebellious to the core. Uh, in one family, parents can look at it and they can see a difference in children. Now, they're all your children and therefore they have to be wonderful, but uh, you know what I mean. They're different. So, she saw in him that he was a goodly child. Maybe she had other kids and Moses stood out to her as having a different approach and attitude to life, even as a little babe, than the others did. So she wanted to be sure Moses was protected and taken care of. 
Is it any wonder that God, when He starts looking for leaders like Joseph, like Moses, He's looking for certain leadership characteristics, certain attitude characteristics of the person that would enable them to do the job that He has for them to do. So, He is very, very aware of our spirit and attitude. I'll cite Samuel, who just from childhood, it was obvious that Samuel was going to be a person that was of use to God in the priesthood and do a good job of it because of his approach to life. His his spirit and attitude were the key. All right, let's go to Exodus 6, verse 9. And Moses spoke so to the children of Israel, but they hearkened not to Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. Now, these were people who had been very, very happy not long ago when they were crossing the Red Sea. And, wow, this was exciting, and God was delivering them. And they were euphoric over what was going on. And then they got on the other side, and hunger and thirst set in right away. And suddenly they were despondent and angry and rebellious and upset. Anguish of spirit. So, the emotion of anguish, the emotion uh, associated negatively with cruel bondage or slavery, uh, came to the forefront. Uh, it changed their attitude. So, instead, instead of a pleasant, obedient, thankful spirit, they suddenly had anguish and anger and bitterness at Moses and ultimately at God. So see how the attitude changed so quickly and they rebelled against those who were trying to help them. Genesis 46. Uh, Going backward a little bit here. I must have gone back to this. Genesis 46. uh, Or 41, I guess it is. Can't, can't read it. Genesis 41, verse 8. Or did I already go there? It came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt. Speaking of Pharaoh, of course, here, his mind, his essence as a human being, the spirit in man, the Pharaoh possessed, all humans have it, Uh, was troubled. So he called the wise men. He wanted relief. And he told them his dream, and there was none that could interpret them to the Pharaoh. So here was anguish, here was trouble, difficulty, problems with his attitude and his mind, and he wanted relief. My spirit is troubled. Fix me, was what he asked. So this has to do, again, with emotion and attitude and approach. Uh, Exodus 28, verse 3. And you shall speak to all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me in the priest's office. So God wanted a special job done here of, of special garments that Aaron could wear into the Holy of Holies. So he found people who were wise-hearted that God had given knowledge, understanding, wisdom to, 
attitude to do and to do right because these had to be built just right, perfectly, because of what they were to symbolize. So he wanted people who had that capacity. You remember when they were building the, uh, the tabernacle and, and the ark in the wilderness, that it says that God gave them skill, gave them that capacity. How? He somehow imparted to their mind understanding and knowledge of how to do something better than others could do it. So the Spirit of God in that case worked with the Spirit in man to empower us. Now, there are times when you have felt during prayer uh, an inspiration from God that somehow came into your mind. How did it get there? It's not something that was generated from your mind. Now, sometimes I haven't a clue what I want to talk about in a sermon. Not a clue. Not a subject. Nothing will come to my mind. So I'll go and talk to God about it and pray about it and say, what would you have people hear? What, what do they need to know? What will help them? And as I pray, a thought will come into my mind. There was birth. There was nothing there. Believe me, there was nothing there. And suddenly there is. And I know it didn't come from here. It had to have come from Him. And then I look in the Scripture and, oh, there it is. It was a thought that led me to certain Scriptures. And out of that comes a message. And I, I depend on that. Give me this day my daily bread. <laughs> you know, I pray that. And you've had the same thing happen to you. You're struggling with something and, and you don't know the answer. It's, as I said, it's not there. You, you're at wit's end. You don't know. So you meditate on it. You think about God's ways. You pray to Him and say, Father, what's the answer? How do I get out of this? I, I, has, I see no way. And thoughts begin forming in your mind. And in many cases, a solution will come. A good solution that you did not have prior to that. So, spirit is hard to define. It's like the wind that blows. You can't see it, but something happens. Something happens in your mind that's outside the mind. Now, one that might make as much sense and maybe be even more real in some respects is that sometimes a thought comes into your mind that's an evil thought, a bad thought. And it's not one that you normally have. I mean, we all have our bad thoughts. We all have our dark side, if you will. Uh, but you know what your dark side is. You know what your evil mind is generally capable of and where it will go that is apart from God. But then here comes this thought from out of nowhere that you recognize is not part of your normal evil thinking. This is something different than that. And if you're cognizant, you'll realize that came from an evil spirit. Principalities and powers, uh, demons, that are trying to take over our minds. So you can recognize it as coming from God when it's an inspiring, godly answer to a problem. And you can see it coming from Satan 
would it would make you even worse than you already are. So we can see, in that sense, the action of spirit working with our minds and emotions. Because you can be close to God, and you can have uplifting thoughts, uh, inspired thoughts, and then you get thoughts that come in your mind from Satan, and your mind can go to some terrible places really easily because it was the, not inspiration, I guess, because inspiration is uplifting, de-inspiration or, or the downward spiral of where it can go once Satan begins to work on you. So things can happen to your spirit like that. Uh, let's go to chapter 35. Verse 31. Uh, And Moses is talking here, said to the children of Israel, uh, And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, and to devise curious works to work in gold and silver and brass and so on. Well, that's what I was just talking about. Uh, God can cause through His Spirit, and increase in our capacities and abilities, doesn't He tell us if we have a talent or five talents or whatever, we're to develop and use those? And of myself, I can do nothing, right? But God can give. Now, let's talk in terms of, let's say, conversion. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, right? So you're going along through life, and you don't understand really anything about God. I talked to a man until about 12.30 last night. It was quite interesting. He's a scientist, and just got his Ph.D. from Austria. He's a guest here, has been for a few days, and he wanted to stay longer, so I let him. So he stayed last night, and he's probably stayed a night. But I told him we were going to have a convention here and there would be people and so on. And I said, uh, we'll go steer around you if you'll steer around us because he's seeing different things. So uh, he left this morning early and went to Zion. He'll be back and then take off somewhere else or leave for good. I don't know. But at any rate, he's been here now nearly four days. And we've talked quite a bit back and forth about politics and things that are going on in the world. So... I got bold and began to talk to him about things of God. Because we'd been talking about politics and how things are going in the world. And his assessment, apart, completely apart from the Bible, or anything about God, because he's essentially an atheist, whatever that means, uh, he believes that we'll be in World War III and the destruction of mankind pretty much utterly, within two years. That's his assessment of the world, apart from prophecy or anything to do with God. And the big question in his mind is this one. Why? You start talking about the earth, the planets. Why are they here? That's his big question. Whatever you bring up, he says, why? I reminded him of a a story I heard of a professor one time in a philosophy course. 
Uh, they'd gone through all the books and all of psychology and all this kind of stuff. Comes time for the final exam to whether you pass the class or not. Final exam time. So here's all these guys going through their books and studying psychology in their notes and trying to figure all this out. So the professor went to the board and wrote one word on the board. Why? Oh man, they dived in and they began to write and write and write. This one guy sat there for a little bit, wrote down one word on his paper. He was done with his final exam in ten seconds. Because... That was his answer. And he got an A. Everybody else worked themselves silly for two hours. <laughs> well, what's the answer? So, I began to talk to him about how Romans says that you'll know God by the things that he's done, the things that he's made. And I pointed at that and I said, before I got into God, I says, all right, there's a china cabinet. How did it get there? Well, I said, somebody had to formulate an idea in their mind of what something would look like, and then they had to figure it out and find the materials and build it. It didn't get there by itself. It didn't just appear. I remember hauling it in here. It didn't come off by itself. So there had to be... I don't know what the IQ of that cabinet is, but it isn't very high. There had to be somebody smarter than it to figure it out and put it together and set it there. And I said, the earth is the same way. There had to be somebody smart enough to figure all this out and put it here, and it couldn't have evolved over time because of the symbiotic relationships between sharks and little fishies that uh, one cannot live without the other. And how do they all evolve at the same time? Ted Armstrong did thousands and thousands of broadcasts about that kind of thing. Too much. But I said, what about a squirrel? I sit and watch a squirrel in a tree. He clips these acorns off, and he goes out and he plants them. Now, he thinks he's just planting them for winter, but he forgets where a lot of them are. There may be a hole in the tree, he puts a bunch in, and he remembers those. But he's doing the work for the tree. He's out there planting new trees, reforesting. He doesn't know it. He's just hiding food. The tree doesn't know it. It's just growing. But then suddenly there are other trees growing out of the woods. Those trees would not be there if the squirrel hadn't planted it. So they're helping each other. How did that all develop at once? You have a lovely wife or a handsome husband. How did you evolve at the same time with everything that is about you? How, how, did, how could it happen? We all know all this. But I was just getting him to understand that there had to be a, a greater mind somehow that, that did the Grand Canyon and these things that he's in awe of. And then I told him who Israel was, explained Western Europe, and uh, I even got into where man originated here in southern Utah and some of that stuff. And, and he was still speaking to me. Uh, but I got down and he says, why? Oh, here's what I, this is what I wanted. Because whoever 
had the mind that could develop all of these things that we see around us must have had a purpose in doing it. There had to be a why did he do it? So he explained about the Spirit of God and how there was rebellion against him through Satan. And he didn't want any more beings like that who would rebel against him. So he made us, put us here in his image so we could die. (laughs) If we didn't do what we're supposed to, we could die and we would not be made spirit unless he was fully assured that we would always follow him and never rebel against him. And this began to kind of make sense to him. I says, why do you get married and have children? You want something like you. And, it, and, it, and it's, 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 it's not you, and it's only this big, but it's in your image, and it grows up to be like you. So it sparked some thought in his mind that maybe there is a power, a spirit, a God, a live being that's more intelligent than everything that's down here, and that he had a purpose in doing all this. I said, we're not sitting here analyzing something that is not here and asking why isn't it here. You know, there are things that don't exist. And we don't sit here and ask why don't they exist. Have you ever really thought about that? Why, why isn't there... And you don't even know what it is that you're talking about because it isn't there. No, we're talking about things that are here. Now, why do they exist? Because somebody had to figure out that they were needed for some reason and then make them with a purpose. So he says, well, he might have to give up his Big Bang Theory. I says, yeah, I'll throw a grenade in something and what life comes out of that? But here we have something that's alive. There's a great deal of difference between life and death. And the difference can be bridged very, very rapidly. Heart attack, car accident, whatever. And suddenly there is no life anymore. But why was it there in the first place? And the only reason is the little booklet we had years ago called Why Were You Born? There was a God who made us, and he wants us to be like him, be his children forever. That's the whole reason. That's the why. So I don't know how well I got it across, but I says, I know I sound strange. And he says, well, I've never heard anything like this. He knows about Protestantism and Catholicism, but he didn't know anything about anything like this. He'd never heard anything like this before. Why? <laughs> Because God's only shown it to a very few people. That's why. So I said, just watch. I said, you don't have to believe what I'm saying. Just watch. See what happens. And then I told him, I believe it's all going to come together and be destroyed in less than two years, too. And America's going into captivity. And I said, you came at it from a totally different reason. I came at it because I see what's going on, one. But two, I've been expecting it for a long time because I saw what the Bible said was going to happen and I know which nations it applies to. And therefore, I'm anticipating it and have been for some decades actually, not knowing the exact time, but knowing that it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And it'll be here soon. 
And uh, you know what could start it all off? Something as simple as these people marching through Mexico right now. It could happen that simply that it'll all start coming apart. Because it started out like 500 or 1,000. Now I hear reports that there's 6,000 and I've heard reports even of 10,000. And there's men, women, and children in that bunch. Now, this is a can't-win situation for Donald Trump and the American government. How about if that people keep adding to it as it comes? What if there's 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people by the time it gets here? And what if it is only five or 10,000? Either way, when they get to that border, you've got a choice. You can shoot them all to keep them from coming across, and the whole world will be angry at you <laughs> because you murdered men, women, and children when they had a need. They wanted to live the American dream. That's how it would be spun. And you killed them all. You're the worst person that ever walked the earth is what, where that would go. Or you let them in. And they contain people who are against us. And that crowd will have uh, terrorists, drug people, uh, Muslims who hate the American culture, the great Satan America, you know. Uh, and then what does it do? If they can march in, so can hundreds of thousands of others. Because you can't stop them. And if that five or ten thousand make it across, how many more come to Mexico and come in? And what are you going to do? You decided not to shoot 10,000, you're going to shoot 100,000? The invasion of America could be beginning right there that easily. I don't know. We'll see. If that doesn't set it off, something else will soon. Or a combination of things. How did I get from here to there? Well, that man can see... He doesn't know what it is, but he can see the spirit in man at work, like he can see the wind at work. And he sees and watches politics, and he grasps and understands that the spirit of some people is evil and selfish, and the leaders of the world are the basest of men that God has put there, just like God said he would do. Are we done already? It's 2.25. We are. Um... Let's stop there then. We'll pick this up tomorrow. But he understands, see, that attitude and approach of mankind can be different. And, and how it is going to affect the world. And when he sees what's going on, he says, this is all coming to a stop within two years. And that's without any knowledge of God. So I said we'll stop, so we will. <laughs>